Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. And man, is there a lot going on this week as we head into December and we head down the home stretch. The last six weeks of the NFL regular season, we're going to hit a lot on the NFL uh, today with uh, my friend Paul Burmeister from NBC Sports. And we're also going to be joined by, uh, later in the podcast, by Ivan Maisel, uh, who's, um, uh, he and his family endured the loss to suicide of their son, Max, six years ago. And I'll talk to Ivan Maisel about his book, I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, a memoir of lost grief and love later in the podcast. And Paul, there is so much going on right now in the NFL. And it almost seems silly, but we're also going to touch on what's happening in college football because I do think that some of the coach movement in college football could reverberate into the NFL. There are going to be programs that have significant money who might want to go out and try to talk to or, or uh, you know, try to get some of these big names in the NFL to get interested in them. We'll see about that. So we'll touch a little bit on the Lincoln Riley, Brian Kelly uh, situations. I have very strong feelings about Brian Kelly. We'll get to those. But... So many NFL topics. One is the possible near dissolution of the Seattle Seahawks in the wake of another disappointing loss on Monday night in Washington. We'll touch on the Seahawks. We're going to touch on uh, Mac Jones and the Patriots, who I have as the third best team in football and the best team in the AFC heading down the home stretch. Um, Paul and I are each going to pick a team that could be this year's Tampa Bay. Remember, one year ago this week, the Bucks were on a two-game losing streak. They had lost two straight at home and were going into their bye week. They were starting to be grumbling about, hey, it's not really working with this offense. And so Paul and I, you saw what happened. They went 9-0 and after that. Uh... Paul and I are going to each give you a team that we think could be, could be this year's Tampa Bay. Um, we're also going to talk about the secret sauce in Green Bay. Um, and so a lot to do in this podcast. Paul, welcome. Um, 
it's just it hasn't been boring around the NFL and around college football. It was for as long as uh, you and I have, have spent Monday nights, you know, focused on the game and thinking about how it was going to affect uh, our, our Tuesday conversations and our work the rest of the week. I mean, last night was a, was a Monday night, you know, three hour experience, unlike any I've had. You've got a close game, which isn't that unusual, but with all the news about Brian Kelly uh, coming out, going to LSU, I mean, I was literally one eye on the game and one eye on what is going on in South Bend. Is this really true? Could it really be true? So um, it was uh, it was a Monday night, three hour experience, unlike any I've had. Paul, wh- why don't we just start there um, since you brought up Brian Kelly and the coach thing? <clears throat> I realize that most people listen to this for uh, for our views on the NFL, but you know, I, I just when I heard this last night, uh, I was just really it just struck me wrong. It really struck me the wrong way, and and again, I'm 64 years old. I've got a little bit of Pollyanna in me, and I've got a little bit of you know. This just feels wrong. And I'll tell you why it feels wrong. Not necessarily because Notre Dame is so sanctimonious and wonderful and and everybody should aspire to coach and play at Notre Dame. No, no, that's not it. Brian Kelly's job every year is to recruit and to gather a bunch of young men and drill them and coach them and practice and play with one goal in mind, and that is to win a national championship. It's very hard at Notre Dame compared to some other programs. I get it, but that has to be the goal every year. That was his goal this year. They've lost one game. Most likely, I would say, it's likely that they're going to get in the final four. They're going to get in the tournament. You work all year for this, and... One day, these kids look on Twitter and find out that their coach has bolted for LSU. And again, I get the fact that 10 or 12 million or whatever he's making, it's really hard to say no to that. I get it. But you know what, Brian Kelly? Be an adult. Be responsible. Just like you would want your players to be. You know, and... I just really object much more than Lincoln Riley leaving because Oklahoma's not playing for anything big like this. They're not going to make the final four. They're not going to make the college football playoffs. So that's sort of the, the hazards of the business. But any coach who would abandon his team before the final four, before this tournament, not only rubs me the wrong way, but I think it says something quite honestly about his character. And it just really, really bothers me. There are some times in life where you need to take a business opportunity and you need to leave and go somewhere. There are some times in life where you just say, no, absolutely not. I can't do this right now. I can't leave these 90 guys. I can't leave this university right now. You want to talk to me in a month? Talk to me. And if the opportunity is not there in a month and almost certainly wouldn't be, then there is no opportunity. That's the way it goes. This is the life you chose. I don't know. 
Paul, I know you're close to the Notre Dame program and, and you know, you go out there and you do the games on the radio. I, I, I just, um, this really was disappointing to me. I, I, and I, I don't know how you feel about it. I, I know, you know, Brian Kelly and everybody says Brian Kelly's a great guy. Uh, this, this just bothers me a lot. I think the opinion that you have, Peter, is one that's going to be shared by by a number of people. And as I sit here and listen to you, you make good points about feeling the way you do. And there will be plenty of people who feel the same way. And I mean, I've got to be honest, when I was sitting there watching it last night and seeing the tweets, I'm like, okay, there's a big difference between LSU being interested in Brian Kelly, which was being reported throughout the day. And then in the evening, turning toward hey, Brian Kelly is going to go to LSU. That w- when it shifted to that, that was when I was like many people, I'm like, I, this, this doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, coaches leave good programs all the time, but they don't leave when their team is six days away from a real fighting chance, at least a 50-50 chance of making the college football playoff and being one of the select teams that actually has a chance to win the national title. Uh, that, that makes it awfully unique. And as I thought about it more and more, um, Peter, you know, I'm around the program every week, like you said. I've spent a lot of time around Brian Kelly this season and in the recent seasons. Uh, there's nothing about the way he conducted himself this year that suggested, you know what? Feels like Brian's looking for something else. Uh, he doesn't have the same fire he had you know, seven years ago or two years ago or five years ago. I mean, the all-time winningest coach at Notre Dame, I, I think, had his best coaching job or did his best coaching job with the help of his assistants in players that he's ever done there. Um, they weren't a real good team in early October. And now all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but not that much later, their team that belongs in the top four. I mean, he did a terrific job of leading a pivot right. on offense and defense that got away from what, what, what they thought the team was going to be in the beginning of the season. So his performance uh, didn't speak or, or didn't smell like somebody who was looking somewhere else. Uh, the way he interacted with us uh, at NBC and also on the radio side didn't suggest that at all. And just the timing of it with the, the team being days away from finding out what their very attractive postseason path is going to be, uh, it, it raises eyebrows. Um, but I can say from personal experience, uh, he didn't act like a coach who was looking elsewhere, and he certainly didn't treat us that way. So I am, you know, based off my personal experience there every weekend, I'm, I'm as surprised as anybody. Paul, how are the how will the players there react? I think I mean it's easy for me to have a, a perspective uh, that you know at the age of fifty that I didn't have when I was twenty. I, I'm sure the players there will probably be a, a mix of sort of understanding and really let down. I mean they're eighteen to twenty two year old kids who've given it all up for this program, and it's easy to look at a leader and say you're not in it with us anymore. So. As the years go by, maybe there'll be some more understanding. But if I can remember back to how I was when I was 19, 20, 21, uh, I would feel left behind. And that's probably a nice way of putting it. There are probably a number of players uh, who, who feel a very strong version of that. I don't know. I, you know, somebody in college football, I don't know who it is. I don't know if anybody has the power to do it. I doubt anybody does. But somebody in college football or the NCAA has to look at things like this and say, this is seedy, to put it mildly. This is wrong. It's morally wrong. 
And to allow one university to plunder another team's coach, you know, in the middle of what might be a championship season is just, you know, you try to compare it to other walks of life. I mean, what would happen in Major League Baseball if uh, the if if Aaron Boone is leading the New York Yankees, they're in uh, they're in the last weekend of the season, and they're about to enter the playoffs as the one seed, try to win another World Series. What would happen if uh, the uh, whatever the Los Angeles Dodgers threw a jillion dollars at him and hired him? Would that be allowed? Of course not. It wouldn't be allowed. It's not right. It's not fair. All right, we're going to move on. I could I could really... <laughs> I'll end up saying some things I know I'll regret, mm. uh, even though I feel them strongly. But I, I think, think you sort I, of get I, I my think, grip. Peter, yeah, j- just to tack on to that, I, I think you're, you're, you're nailing the main point here, that if, if there is a problem here, why not go outside of the, of the person who decided to leave? I mean... Look at the look at the place that made him an offer that you really can't resist. I mean, like you're, it's different because there are young, young people's lives involved. But I mean, whatever your house is worth, there, Peter. If somebody knocked on the door and said, "I'll give you four times the amount in cash right now," you you might be like, uh, "Hey, honey, we've got something to think about here." And it's I I know it's not that easy because but the there difference are young kids the lives. difference Paul I, the dip Paul that happens that happens every day in the real world that somebody yep. makes somebody an offer that they can't refuse. But right. it shouldn't happen when there's as much on the line as there is in this particular case. And again, I, think I started this by point. saying, yeah. hey, maybe maybe I'm Pollyanna about this. And I know that that you know a lot of people are going to say, eh, it's just business. I just, this one, this happens all the time in college sports. I wonder, honestly, what does it matter that Mel Tucker, if indeed at Michigan State, he's going to get a whatever it is, nine, ten million dollar a year contract? What does it matter if in two weeks, if somebody comes in and offers him a job for 15 million, that he can go take it? What, what does that mean then to sign a contract in college sports? It's just reprehensible. The whole business and I just don't think that that right-thinking people can look at this and shrug their shoulders, no matter how much you might love LSU or, or whatever. And and no matter at Notre Dame now, you say, hey, good riddance. You know, we don't want you anymore. Because I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of people who say that too. But this is wrong, period, full stop. All right, we got to move on to the NFL. Um, I watched, uh, you know, a chunks of that game, you know, the Seattle, uh, game at Washington. And the one thing I kept thinking of Paul is the Seahawks are over, you know, they're, they're done. They, they're, they're basically finished and the Seahawks need to look at themselves and the owner who's, or you know, Jody Allen, who took over the team after the death of her brother, um, you know, the Microsoft co-founder, Paul Allen, uh, after his death, um, she's as reclusive as, as he is, or as he was. 
And so nobody knows. Nobody has any idea. She doesn't have anything to do with the football team. So the Seahawks are three and eight. Russell Wilson looks like he's 92 years old and, and, you know, is just not playing like Russell Wilson. You know, the Seahawks have some very serious questions to answer. Number one, do you bring back your 70-year-old coach, Pete Carroll? Do you bring back your general manager, uh, John Schneider? And uh, if they are allowed to stay or Schneider or Carroll is allowed to stay, what do you do with Russell Wilson? Do you put him on the market after the season and get three first-round picks for him and start the rebuild of this once-proud franchise? I would probably do that. I'd probably want to start the rebuild. Um, And I'm not saying that they'll get value for Russell Wilson if they do that. But this is a team that really needs to build the thing from the studs up again, I think, Paul. You look at any team right now at this point of the season as we kind of turn the, the, the final corner into December, we're almost there, that, that is three and eight, a team that is that far out of it right now. They have a lot of problems. And I, I think if you look at the specific problems, the, the brand of problems that Seattle has, two of the really big ones, uh, number one, they have a star quarterback who probably doesn't want to be there. I mean, he, he would like to be somewhere else. That's number one. Uh, and somewhere else on the list near the top, when you look at the, the entire franchise and what's coming, they don't have draft capital. They, they've traded away a lot of draft picks. So you have a quarterback who would probably rather be somewhere else, and you don't have a first-round pick coming up in April. Um, if you do decide to, to let Russell Wilson go, to trade him away, you don't have that quarterback who is a superstar still. I know he's struggling right now compared to his normal standards, but I think there's a lot of good years left right there in Russell Wilson. And you could solve that problem of your lack of draft capital. So it's not just those two things, uh, but Seattle has a lot of problems. And I think if they do make the decision to trade Russell Wilson away, they could solve a couple of their big ones and at least start down the road of getting back to where they used to be in come January. Paul, I was thinking about this too last night. One of the things I would, if I were looking at this from 10,000 feet, I would make a coaching change Um, and I would get a young offensive minded coach and I'd go to Russell Wilson and say, we really want you to be the centerpiece of our rebuild. Uh, But if you're going to be miserable, if you're going to be unhappy, we'll trade you if we can get a good offer. And that good offer has to start with three ones. I would not trade him for two ones and a two or anything like that. I'd just basically tell anybody who's interested, don't even call us unless it's three ones plus, you know, whatever it is after that. Um, But I do think that it's possible that Russell Wilson not could be enticed because I don't think you want any, I don't think you want to force anybody to stay. But what if, for instance, he had great respect for the coach who, who the, the next coach of the team. Let's just say for the sake of argument that they were to look at Josh McDaniels. And I have no idea who they would look at if John Schneider was controlling this and they were to make a coaching change. Uh, so I don't know. But I just use McDaniels as an example that maybe Russell Wilson would say, hey, this is the guy who coached Tom Brady uh, for a long time. This is a guy who really has made great strides in year one with Mac Jones. I'd love to work with him. So, or, or whoever it would be, Eric Bieniemy or 
any anybody if before I trade Russell Wilson, I want to find out from him. Listen, is it possible? Can we do some stuff that would have you as the centerpiece of the rebuild? Because Paul, honestly, even if their draft capital is bad, I'd still rather have Russell Wilson than uh, than all of all the draft picks because it's been proven time and again that there is no price for uh, you know a, a top quarterback in the league. I think that's an awesome point, Peter. As I sit here and listen, it's one that I wish I would have come up with. And I can say that, that that was my idea. But if it truly is a choice in this game of, you know, the what if scenario looking at the, at the Seahawks future, if they could pick Russell Wilson, uh, a happy Russell Wilson, who was invested in being there the next six to eight years over Pete Carroll and John Schneider, if that truly is a, a pick or a division that's there, I'd take Russell Wilson 10 times out of 10. So it's a hell of a yeah. good point. If, if, if they can uh, put a picture in his mind where like you would be happy in this scenario, we're going to get this coach, we're going to go out and get the, these free agents, we're going to build it this way, and he wants to be there, I mean, that, that would be priority number one. That would be position A for the Seahawks moving forward. Let's transition now to uh, New England. I, uh, I did something in my column the other day. I picked the top 10 teams in the league, and – I had New England number three right after Green Bay and Arizona. And I thought long and hard about it. And Paul, I, I could have put Buffalo there. I could have even put Kansas City there. Um, I thought about Baltimore. I just think Baltimore, man, they, they're winning. But wow, they, they, are, they sure don't inspire a lot of confidence with the way they're playing lately. Now, they are winning, and that's all that matters. I get it. But as I say, they don't inspire confidence right now. I think when I look at Mac Jones right now, I look at a guy who, on the first series of the game the other day against Tennessee, he made two throws that I thought were absolutely fantastic under great pressure. And I thought it was so interesting that after the game, Pro Football Focus, I, had, I saw a stat. Uh, most efficient quarterback in the NFL this year through 12 weeks under pressure is Mac Jones. Not the most, not the best rookie, but the best quarterback under pressure so far this year, Mac Jones. And he made a throw a moment before getting sandwiched that resulted in a completion and a first down. And then on his touchdown pass to Kendrick Bourne in the corner of the end zone, he was staring right down the barrel uh, of a rusher, I think it was Harold Landry, a, a millisecond away from, you know, hitting him. And that really proves to me that, first of all, to be able to execute under that kind of pressure, that takes years for NFL quarterbacks to learn. And Mac Jones is doing it in his 12th game in the NFL. And Paul, you're a former quarterback. I I'd love to hear your thoughts about what you've seen in Mac Jones. I, I really started watching Mac Jones that, that these last three or four weeks with this idea, Peter, of, okay, that this guy is, is performing better than even those of us who believe them in draft time. He, he's outperforming those expectations. And a lot of it is tied into this narrative. Well, he's in the perfect spot. The Patriots are helping him. And I've been watching thinking, okay, 
how much of this is his real talent and how much of this is the Patriots helping him? And I took notes watching this game a couple of times Sunday against Tennessee. Under the category of help, number one, the Patriots' run commitment is really, really impressive, Peter. And I was trying to think of ways to really express this with you. And they're in the bottom half of the league in yards per attempt, yet they're in the top seven for rush attempts. So think about that. They're running the ball a lot compared to other teams without really having huge success. They are just committed to what rush attempts bring to Mac Jones and Josh McDaniels. That's number one on the help. Number two, he's throwing beneath the sticks on third down and long quite a bit. And we've all thought all this time, you know, how many times have people yelled at the TV on third and eight when they get seven because the quarterback threw it only six yards and the guy fell forward? They throw beneath the sticks quite a bit on third down, uh, not to make it easy on Mac Jones, but to make it easier. So they are handling him and managing him, I think, in a really smart way. And I love what Josh McDaniels is doing with the number of formations that they have. I mean, it's not uncommon, Peter, to have Mac Jones on first and 10, shotgun, empty backfield, which makes the defense think, oh, we can come after you because you got nobody back there to help. And then on second down, they're in a tight formation. He's under center with the fullback and they just do some kind of play action. So the way they're helping him goes, cast a really wide net with where he throws it on third and long, the kind of formations he gets to use. Uh, but I just, I really love how they are using his raw talent. You pointed out a really good example of that first touchdown pass. The third down that they, they converted before that, moments before, they had third and 10, Peter, and he threw a screen pass. That's just good coaching. That's good on Josh McDaniels. Right. So the first third down is way to go, Josh. That's smart. The next one for the touchdown is like, that's why Mac Jones should have been drafted even higher. It's just a really nice mix of the Patriots uh, helping him and him also showing off his talent. That's a lot better than many people believe. Paul, two last topics that I wanted to get to today. One is, I think I look back at one year ago in the NFL and I see this, you know, sort of meteor come out of the sky in Tampa Bay starting in early December. And so I just started to think to myself with everything being so weird in football this year and we not being able to rely on anything. I wonder, let's each pick a team. I'll start. Let's each pick a team that we could see going on that kind of run this year. And I'm going to start and I'm going to say San Francisco. And I think the recent efficiency of Jimmy Garoppolo, one turnover in the last three games, and the emergence of, uh, of Elijah Mitchell in that running game, their last draft choice this year, another great job by their ancient running backs coach, Bobby Turner, who's 72 years old, and who goes back to the Mike Shanahan days in Denver. You know, the, you just simply don't understand how great an assistant coach, he's got to be on the, uh, on the Mount Rushmore of current assistant coaches in the NFL. He's fantastic. But they've gotten that running back ready to go and up to speed. And look, they're going to have a couple of injuries that they've got to manage, huge injuries, now, Fred Warner on defense, gone a week or two. Uh, and the same with Debo Samuel, who is right now the best. He and Cordero Patterson, 
the best multi-purpose weapons in football today. And they're going to be without each of those guys for the next either week or two. Uh, and that is trouble. They've got to handle that. But I really think the 49ers can get on a run. Give me your team. So under this criteria of a team that's going to be a sixth or seventh seed that, that could make some noise in January, I go to the AFC theater and I'm going with the Colts. I know they had a disappointing finish against the Buccaneers this past weekend, but they've got a formula. Uh, they lead the league in turnover margin. I really like what they're doing defensively. Jonathan Taylor was kind of quiet this past weekend. It was strange how they didn't use him, uh, but they have that that I think is going to come out even more in December. And my main reason, I, I go back to about a month ago, Peter, uh, Sims and I went in deep on uh, Carson Wentz when they had that overtime loss to Tennessee and he had those two really bad interceptions late in the game. We went back and looked at those and I, was, I, I looked at Carson's numbers leading up to that. I'm like, that's really uncharacteristic based off of what he's done this entire season. He's hardly thrown any interceptions. You know, let's see if, if those moments there at the end of that Tennessee game really start to come out more or if they truly were just kind of aberrations. Uh, nine of the 12 games, Peter, he has not thrown a single interception in their games. Uh, he's taking care of the ball really well. They've got Taylor. They've got a defense. So I think they have the components of a team. I don't think they're going to win at all, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if it's a team that's playing, you know, in mid, mid-January, maybe late January. You know, the, la- the other one that either of us could have said is Cincinnati. The last two weeks, yeah. man, <laughs> they've been shot out of a cannon two weeks in a row. They obliterated the Steelers on Sunday. And Joe Burrow, wow. You know, how, how about this? Joe Burrow and, uh, and Justin Herbert play for the first time uh, this, this Sunday. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, important game for both teams, obviously. But those two guys have already combined uh, for 80 touchdown passes in the NFL. It's just they've, they've really blown up early on in their NFL careers. Okay. Yeah. The last very quick thing I want to get to is, you know, to me, I think there's one thing that really has surprised me early on as, you know, through 12 weeks. Green Bay's defense, I absolutely love. And it's amazing they're playing so well without Zadarius Smith uh, and without Jair Alexander. Those are their best two defensive players. And 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 I asked Matt LaFleur after their game on Sunday when they had that impressive win over the Rams. I asked him and he goes, hey, the biggest thing for us has been Devondre Campbell. And everybody says, Who? Devondre Campbell is the guy who's, who's got the green dot on his helmet, calling the defensive signals, uh, the nerve center of this defense that has been really so much better than anybody thought. And look, we know an Aaron Rodgers team is going to score points, but uh, you know Aaron Rodgers can't play defense. And this team, with the new defensive coordinator, Joe Barry, I think is going to go far in this playoff season this year because of what they can do on defense. I don't know what you've thought when you watch them, but that has been a revelation to me. I watched the Packers, Peter, and two things stand out to me. Number one, Aaron Rodgers is still Aaron Rodgers, but he doesn't have to be Superman for them to look good and to win. He doesn't have to have giant numbers for them to give you confidence that they could still be standing in February and he's certainly capable of it but you know the best point guard on the best college or NFL or NBA team 
shouldn't be scoring 35 points every game. He should be around 20. Right. And I think Aaron Rodgers with the team around him can now play that kind of role. The second thing I love about Green Bay, Peter, just kind of, you know, looking at, at the entire team, not just the defense or just the offense, they don't have this wide range of, hey, they were awesome this week. God, what happened the last two weeks? They were terrible. A lot of the other teams that are in the top 10 have had those kind of stretches. And Green Bay, minus week one, and minus offensively when they had to play with Jordan Love, they've been kind of living in this place between good and really good. And there's not a lot of swings. And I, I put a lot of stock into that. Uh, in addition to the defense, it's just a team that's living in this good place without dipping down too often. And I think that's going to serve them really well in these next couple months. Paul, that's, uh, that's, I mean, we could we could spend another hour on topics that I haven't even brought up around the NFL. Uh, you know, Miami fascinates me. Two is playing better. There's a lot of really interesting things going on, but we'll save those for next week. I'm going to get to my, uh, to my guest now, uh, Ivan Maisel, uh, one of the best college football writers in the country. I'm sure you've read him. You know Ivan Maisel, the football writer. But he's written a book about life uh, now, and it's called I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, a memoir of loss, grief, and love. And it's about the death by suicide of his son six years ago, the impact it's had on a family's life, and the impact that Ivan Maisel hopes it has on very many other lives. Now to my conversation with Ivan Maisel. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You know, so happy to be joined by Ivan Maisel. Uh, and most of you will know Ivan from his days all over the planet uh, at Sports Illustrated and ESPN and, you know, covering college football, doing such a great job doing that. He now is vice president of editorial for On3, which is a recruiting and college sports uh, website, uh, which really has, uh, you know, I've spent some time looking at it. Well, I'll tell you what, they cover the ground of recruiting pretty, pretty heavily. Um, but, but anyway, I obviously I wanted to have Ivan on to discuss uh, kind of the book uh, that 
has really made a big impact on me and the story that's made a big impact on me. The name of the book is I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, a memoir of loss, grief, and love. And for those who don't know the story, uh, it just isn't very easy just to put things like this right on paper. And I'm going to explain to you before we get into our conversation with Ivan about what exactly happened to him in February 2015. And I'm just going to read you a couple of paragraphs from uh, his book about Ivan's son, Max, who was a student at a college in Rochester, New York at the time. On a very cold night of a very cold winter, our 21-year-old son, Max, walked off an ice-slicked pier onto the surface of Lake Ontario. We, my wife Meg, his sister Sarah and Elizabeth, and I presume that he walked until the ice gave way beneath him. We don't know. We will never know. An eyewitness saw him get out of his car, an 11-year-old SUV that had once belonged to his beloved grandfather, and walk onto the pier. Law enforcement eventually spotted some of Max's belongings near the end of the pier on the solid surface of the lake. And eight weeks later, the fourth week of spring, according to the calendar, Lake Ontario surrendered his body. It would not be much of a whodunit. Those are the facts that we know. He left no note. Max wasn't much on communicating. I keep trying to catch his eyes about the death of my son, Max, the grief that engulfed our family and how I learned to coexist with that grief. Ivan Maisel, welcome and thank you so much, not only for joining me, but in writing this book that could not have been very easy. Well, it's, thank you for having me, Peter. And it's interesting, writing the book was not difficult in the sense of all the work that I had to do to get to the point to where I could craft a narrative. That was the hard part. You know, living it was hard. Writing is what I do. So it was just the best way for me to tell the story uh, and, you know, about Max and, 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 and about what I learned uh, about grief. Can you please tell me about Max? <laughs> Yes, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd say laughingly, Max was proof that God had a sense of humor because he had no interest in sports. And for my son to have no interest in sports was just, uh, it, you know, I could never quite get over that. I, you know, sort of get over yourself that, you know, that's what happens. But uh, he was uh, shy and, and almost withdrawn. Uh, he had trouble. He was somewhere on the spectrum. We never got a clear uh, diagnosis of exactly what it was, but he had trouble reading social cues as, as so many of those children do. And as a consequence, he put up a wall, sort of a self-protective wall from people. And, you know, so behind that wall, he was just a sweet kid and uh, really cared deeply about people, uh, loved pets, you know, because it was easy for him to communicate with them and uh, found his passion, found his method of communication through photography uh, in, as a teenager and grew to uh, become really good at it. Uh, he was majoring in it at RIT in Rochester, as you said, and 
that's, uh, uh, you know, I couldn't get to him through sports. So I built a bridge with other things that I like, you know, comedy, uh, you know, got him on the Marx Brothers and Looney Tunes early. And then he graduated to Bob and Ray. He was had a terrific dry wit. Uh, but wish I had done a better job of maybe going over that bridge myself to what his interests were. But, you know, his interests were like most teenage boys, video games and anime. And, and you know, that was a little hard for me. You know, I am so curious and so interested in so many aspects of this because I think every parent will have had moments where they have extreme difficulty with a child or all of their children. And I wonder, was, was Max ever either combative or really difficult or was he just withdrawn? He was never combative. Uh, in fact, he was the uh, he was the one that I, he was a rule follower, Peter. You know, so he always did what he was told to do. Uh, he was dependable in that regard in terms of f doing stuff around the house. You know, walking the dog, uh, emptying the dishwasher. Uh, you know, just uh, you know, he didn't he didn't he didn't give you you know five reasons why he couldn't do it. He just would do it. Um, Sometimes you wish he would have rebelled a little bit more, you know, but, uh, and, and oddly enough, the last winter break, he was home, you know, his junior year of college, he was a little more independent from us. He, he was a little less, a little more reluctant to engage. And we read that as, you know, okay, finally, we're seeing a little independence here. And, you know, in retrospect, it's a lot easier to read it as, you no, know, he was beginning to spiral away from us and away from, uh, you know, from uh, into mental illness. And, you know, we don't, we don't know that, but it, it's easy to read it that way. I found what was so interesting about the story and about your book is that there are no hidden secrets in here. In fact, you even write about how right away you didn't want to have the burden of having any secrets from any member of your family because it yeah. would be so hard to simply know. Let's see, what did I tell this person? What did I tell that person? I'm just going to tell everybody everything I know because obviously it was what about eight weeks before Max was found. But obviously, yes. after a few days, I'm sure you understood that, especially in that weather, there was almost no way he could be alive. Sure. And where did you get to the point where you really wanted to talk about this openly rather than you wanted to just hide it and kind of curl up into a ball and, and not communicate about it? Well, I was never in that place. First of all, as a journalist, the last thing I wanted to do was no comment anybody. I thought that would have been hugely hypocritical. Uh, second, I thought if we attempted to hide this or were secretive about it, it would easily be interpreted as if we were ashamed of Max. And we were never ashamed of Max. You know, we, we loved him and he was a great kid. And I didn't, you know, I just thought it could be easily interpreted in ways that we wouldn't intend you know but the other thing peter is we had to decide immediately because you know headlines went out 
son of ESPN writer missing and those four letters in that headline, you know, that's clickbait. So we had to decide very quickly. I mean, media were calling and uh, what were we going to do? And I just thought, uh, I'll try to meet them head on. And, you know, what were we, what's the worst, the worst thing that could happen to us had happened, you know, how people, you know, reacted to it was not going to be as bad as the event itself. So it, it just really, I didn't really care, you know, I put it all out there and, and let people understand this is what mental illness is. This is, uh, and, and this is what grief is, you know, and, and I, you know, that was a later decision. I, I once I kind of realized, cause I was so bad at grief and so bad at comforting the grieving. And, and w- once I went through it, I thought I should be public with this and maybe I can help somebody. One of the things that really impacted me is at one of your daughter's uh, graduations, there was a photo of your three children, the two daughters smiling happily for the camera, Max sort of looking out into the distance and not looking at the camera. Yeah. And I thought to myself when I first saw that, that's what Ivan means when he says, I keep trying to catch his eye. Is that right? That's it. That's where the title of the book came from. And really it was, I was uh, sitting at this desk, you know, looking, it's the wallpaper on my phone, that photo. And, uh, you know, I was looking at the photo. I'm like, come on, Max, look at me. Uh, But he, you know, it was funny, Peter, he loved taking photographs, but he didn't want to interact with people. So he didn't like his having his picture taken and he didn't like taking pictures of others. You know, he liked taking landscapes and architecture and, and photos of that. And he was really good at it. And he's got, you know, we have some photos of his hanging, you know, in, in the house here. But uh, that, I thought that photo really sort of captured his, uh, how much he struggled to interact with people. Ivan, uh, I've heard a lot of stories over time about how after um, the death of a child, whether by suicide or some other way, that your life is really never the same. And I don't mean to pry too much, but can you tell me a little bit about the overall effect on the family? And now, six years later, what is it like? Well, it it, uh, it it was funny, uh, Peter. You know, our daughter, our oldest, lived in San Francisco uh, when Max disappeared, and she flew to Rochester a couple of days after he disappeared. And we got about ten feet into the Rochester airport, and Sarah is very astute emotionally, and she said, "You know, I've been reading about families and and." couples who lose, uh, lose a child and half of them get a divorce. Are you guys going to get a divorce? Wow. <laughs> wow. And I was like, Whoa. I said, uh, so let's do one disaster at a time. Shall we? You know, I said, you know, I said, no, sweetie, we're not. And, you know, Meg and I, uh, just sort of supported one another, I guess would be the best way to put it. And, and David Kessler who's 
probably the leading American expert on grief. And I didn't read this until last year when I was putting this book together, said that it's not the loss of the child that forces couples apart. It's that they judge one another's grief. And, you know, why aren't you crying? Why are you crying? How come you never go to the cemetery? You go to the cemetery all the time. And that's just not uh, who, you know, Meg and I are. And, you know, we did it very differently. And, and I have to emphasize this book is my story. It's not her story or the girl's story. But, you know, it was never, there was never any judgment there. We both knew we were trying the best we could to deal with it as best we could. And, and, you know, Meg, Meg wanted a roadmap of how Max got to that point. And she asked a lot of questions and turned over a lot of rocks. And uh, I just didn't need to do that. I, you know, to me, that was just, that was too much pain. So we let each other do what we needed to do. And, and all we said to the girls was, you know, we don't care how you grieve but you've got to grieve because you've got to get it out. And if you don't get it out when you want it to come out, then it's going to come out when it wants to come out, which may not be convenient. And uh, they've, they did it very differently. Elizabeth's a lot more private than Sarah, but, but they did it and, uh, and, and are continuing to do it as we all are. When, when you were first going through this, is it true that it does get easier or do you still sometimes wake up and your first thought is, my God, I can't believe my son is gone? Well, you sure you have those moments, but what you learn with time is that the pain recedes and, and it comes back. But when it comes back, it's going to recede again. And, you know, I, and it may a neighbor who lost a husband uh, said to me, and she may have gotten it off a greeting card. I, I don't know, but it really resonated with me that sometimes grief washes over your ankles and sometimes it washes over your head, but in both cases, it goes back out. And that, you know, you learn that when you're having a really bad moment or a really bad day that just don't fight it, just sort of lean into it and it will it will recede uh, you know and and the thing the thing to me peter is just because we had this really really bad thing happen to us didn't preclude really good things from continuing to happen and and we were faced with that i don't know dilemma almost immediately after max died in fact it was two weeks after his body surfaced in april uh, at lake ontario and you know, God bless the fishermen who, who came across him. Uh, but two weeks after that, you know, my nephew got married. And so we had to decide, you know, are we going to go to the wedding? And, you know, did we really want to go to the wedding? Of course not. But I thought, well, then if we don't go, we lose again. You know, that's more joy that we are denying, being denied or denying ourselves. So you know, it was sort of fake it till you make it, you know, I mean, we went and, and, you know, and I, I we danced that I, I danced, I'm pretty sure Meg didn't come out of the house. It was in, it was in his backyard, <laughs> but, uh, you know, pretty soon you catch yourself having a good moment 
And, and then when I say pretty soon, it, it was probably weeks, but you catch yourself having a good hour and then, and then maybe a good day. And, and you learn that you just have to carry it, carry the grief with you. You know, there is the cover of your book is a photo, a grainy photograph of a man who is looking out, I'm assuming looking out onto Lake Ontario and yes. it's Max. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a photograph that Max took for a photography class, a self-portrait. And as well as the photograph of Max at the graduation where he is looking away and your two daughters are smiling for the camera, I find it so telling that the self-portrait that he took of himself is is grainy and kind of looking out to the water. What did it say to you? Well, we didn't discover that photo till after he died, and and it was he had he had boxes of of well photographic paper boxes in his room on campus, and you know we just opened you know and he wouldn't show us anything. You know he showed us very little of his work, so we just were going you know looking through it, fascinated. And we came across this photo and, and it was an assignment for a photography class where he had to take his self-portrait for a book jacket of his photography. And this is what he turned in, which is, you know, telling in, in any number of ways, you know. Uh, so uh, that, you know, he just didn't, he didn't, he had so little self uh I don't know of regard, so a little self-confidence that that's that was the photo he wanted to 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 represent himself, and uh, it's it's uh, you know it's kind of too bad, really. Uh, but you know, I love the fact that we put it on the cover of the book, and that now he's a published photographer, and you know, maybe we completed the assignment, you know. But it's it, it it's a shame. I wish he had felt better about himself. Uh, I wonder if when you first discovered Max was missing and you were talking, I assume either you or the police are talking to his friends. Did anybody have any idea he was going to do this? He had some friends that he had confided in that he was, you know, thinking about suicide and you know the shame of it is the people he confided in didn't know how to help him and the people who knew how to help him just misread what he was telling them i mean he was he was uh engaged with the mental health center on campus uh they say that they did not see signs of suicidal ideation that to them were sufficient enough to intervene or you know to put him in a facility or put him in a hospital that he had that he talked about the future that he had plans he was making plans and that's usually a pretty good sign that it's not dire right and we don't know whether he was misleading them uh or 
this was just you know misleading them to get them off the trait the trail yeah yeah i mean you know i mean he he was telling them one thing and you know we came to learn that you know he actually was he did have a plan and uh the weather was so bad up there it was an awful winter and the weather was so bad up there that at one point he you know he was snowed in and couldn't dig his car out you know so uh you know we, which we found out you know he, he wrote about that in his laptop so uh obviously uh the people who could have helped him didn't react quickly enough and that's you know but again what, what are you going to do you know it's yeah. it, it just too bad i love the fact that you write so openly about what happens when people ask you so how many kids do you have and you will say three and you will explain what happened to max not in great detail but you'll explain it and one of the reasons that you do and one of the reasons that you feel like it's important to not just say well we had three children and then just move on and you write and i find that this is such a great sentence you write the fact is mental illness needs sunlight and that just really hit me a lot because what do people do when they find out or they start thinking to themselves hey I've got a problem or, Hey, I'm different than everybody else. What do they do? They try to hide many people. They just try to hide it. You know, they try to sure. just live with it. And I think that is, that's one of the reasons why I think your book is hit home with so many people, because you say, uh, mental illness needs sunlight. And then you give it an entire painstaking uh you know wrenching book about giving it that sunlight well thank you and you know look i'm i'm not an expert on mental health I, i'm an expert on on one case of mental health that you know didn't end too well but to me the analogy is is with cancer and you know our parents generation didn't talk about cancer or if they did they whispered it and sometimes they wouldn't even tell whoever had the cancer that they had cancer. And we brought cancer out into the open. And, you know, the, the strides that we've made over the course of my lifetime are incredible. And, and the strides we've made in the last 10 years are incredible. You know, uh, and we're, get, we're getting there with mental illness. We're just not moving fast enough and we're not open enough. And I don't know whether it's because it's uh it's it's a you know you can't see the the effects of the illness i you know i think some of it may have to do with that you know american macho i'm gonna john wayne i'm gonna tough this out you know baloney that we all grew up with uh the fact is it's showing strength is showing your vulnerability you know and and having the uh having the strength to say i need help you know that that is a measure of strength and we're seeing it at the highest level of of competitive athletics uh you know from kevin love to calvin ridley to simone biles 
uh, and that's good, you know, but you know, I'm hoping that this is just the beginning of the onslaught and that we will really begin to do a lot more as a society. I want to ask you two other things. One involves another probably more famous <laughs> suicide and family tragedy involving uh, the Holinskys, which you wrote about in your book. And for those who don't know the story, I'm wondering if you could tell people the story and also how you got to uh, sort of interface with them and get to know them and tell their story. Sure. Tyler Helinski was a quarterback at Washington State who ended his life, had given no warning of that he was struggling, ended his life in January of 2018. So I'm three years down the road at that point of, of dealing with grief and of having lost a son to suicide. And ESPN, where I was working at the time, reached out to me and said, would you be interested in doing a story about this? And I was like, no. <laughs> uh, and what I didn't want to do was the sort of the TikTok, this is how Tyler Helinski's life came to an end. I thought, even I thought that was a little intrusive. Uh, Greg Bishop at Sports Illustrated did a terrific job of it. And again, you know, was able to divorce himself from the emotion of, of the piece of the story and just did a really good job. And I, and when that story ran, I went, and they did a little documentary that went with it. That was also good. And that story went on. Okay, good. Uh, you know, I don't have to do that. And then a couple of weeks later, ESPN came back to me again and said, we'd still like you to do something. And, and this was Drew Gallagher at Game Day, the producer of Game Day. And I said, look, you know, we both know why you're asking me. It's because of what, I, you know, what I've gone through. So if you want me and you want my, quote, expertise, then let me write what I know, which is about what his parents are going through. And they were totally okay with it. So I reached out to Mark and Kim Holinsky and look, Peter, I had had fathers who had lost sons reach out to me, some that I knew, some that I had barely met. Uh, I got a lovely handwritten letter from Joe Philbin, who was the Dolphins head coach at the time, and just really meant a lot to me. And so I kind of saw this as you're okay, other fathers reached out to you, you know, you need to do this. And I said to Mark, you know, look, I'm three years farther down the road than you are. This is, these are some things that I thought about. These are some things you need to think about. And the first time we spoke on the phone, we spoke for an hour and 10 minutes and they were like, yeah, you know, come on, let's do this. And it was, uh, you know, Lauren Soul was the producer of the piece for Game Day, did a, just a terrific job, you know, gained the trust of Helinski's. And, and I wrote a piece that also ran uh, at ESPN.com. And, and they, you know, it, it, it helped all of us. And, and you know, I, we came out of this, Mark and Kim and, and Meg and I are friends now and, and lend each other's support. And that was uh, really a, a great benefit to all of us. And they have done tremendous work with the foundation they have started, Helinski's Hope, in creating uh, 
mental health programming for intercollegiate athletic programs. And, you know, I think they're up, I think right around a hundred or even more than a hundred programs that they have presented this program to. And it's, they've done great work. And I think college athletics across the board is responding to this crisis. Can I ask you why, uh, or how many people since this happened and maybe even since the book has come out, how many people have contacted you and said, you helped me in a way that maybe you'll never know. And, and maybe you helped open a line of communication between people, whether it be parent and son, whether it be husband and wife, who, whoever it be. Do you, do you think that you've had been able to have that kind of impact? And have you heard from people about that? I do hear from people regularly, and I, I do get some of that, Peter. What I get more is, and and this happened to, uh, to me early on, but it's, you know, now that the book is out, it's happened to me more, is that people who either I know or who I'm just meeting and appear to me as if they're just carrying on their lives like the rest of us will very quietly say to me, or I'll get an email from them, I lost my sister, or my father ended his life and you know and I, it's been 25 years and I'm still dealing with it and thank you for writing this and you know that's what early on the way that helped me was realizing well that I knew I knew him or you know I knew her I knew him and she, they seemed like they were okay so they found a way to cope with this so I, I can do this too um and again, in bringing a bringing it out and talking about it, and showing that it's really not anything that you know you need to be uh, ashamed of any more than the, if you had lost somebody to cancer. I think it helps all of us. It helps those of us who are doing the grieving, and it helps society in general understand that we need to look at mental illness differently. Do you think Max ever thought, because this is what I always hear from people who maybe have taken their lives and have, have left a note or have, have told somebody, oh, you guys will be so much better off without me. And, and I always think to myself, no matter what the burden is, no matter what problems you might have do you realize what your loss and you not being around anymore does to people people would much rather cope with whatever the awkwardness of max mazel yeah than cope with the fact that he walked out into lake ontario and ended his life and i always think of like I'm thinking of your family right now, no matter how awkward or whatever uncomfortable it might be, what you wouldn't give to spend one more day with Max Maisel. Oh, sure. No, I mean, you, uh, to me, it's, it's really a measure of the pain he was in. And, 
that this is what he felt he needed to do, you know, and he let us know, uh, he had a conversation with Meg not too long before he died in which he said, I know you and dad accept me for who I am. And that's sort of what we've hung our, our, uh, you know, our feelings on about him. We're really glad he didn't leave a note. Well, I won't speak for Meg. I'm really glad he didn't leave a note. I, you know, suicide is an irrational act. It's an act of someone who's not thinking clearly. And the suicide note is written by someone who is clearly not thinking clearly. And I, I wouldn't want that to be the last thing we have from him because you would put too much meaning into it. Yeah. You know, that, you know, that this is what, this is why he did this or, you know, what he said to Meg is, is so that to me would be so heartening. Yes. Yeah. No, it, it saved a lot of heartache. It saved a lot of heartache. And, you know, the other thing is uh, just the notion of, of, this is an irrational act and any, any, all of us who survive it are who think rationally are never really going to understand it because that's just not how our brains work. And that uh, taking that to heart, you know, that notion to heart, I think saved me a lot of angst as well, you know, and, and look, that may just be, Peter, that may just be my get out of jail free card from guilt. And I freely and fully admit that, but it makes sense to me and I'm okay with it. You know, I, the, you know, I, I know Max didn't want this, you know, but he didn't want to live the way he was living. And the more time that passes, the more I understand just how hard he worked and, and fought to live as long as he did. After reading your story and understanding it, I just think, and look, it's so ridiculously presumptuous for me to parachute in here and try to get to know your story a little bit and talk to you. And That's be what a, we do. <laughs> that is what we do. It is what we do. Even though this is, I mean, I asked myself, why did I really want to talk to you? Why did I want to do something on this? And Quite honestly, it's because people need this. They just, and I, because I focus on things other than sports, often in my columns, sometimes in my podcast, but I just sometimes, when something like this happens, look, if you were an insurance salesman from Kankakee, Illinois, and this happened to you, you know, unfortunately, I just wouldn't care. Yep. You're somebody who is a peer and, you know, who's in the same business as I am. And when I first heard about it, I started to think to myself, well, let's see, uh, how, how, are, how are my kids and are they okay? And do I see any sign like this in them or anything like that? You just, but, but I just think in general, when you talk about there has to be more sunlight shined on mental illness. That one sentence alone, honestly motivated me to reach out to you and to, to really try, hopefully somebody is listening to this and either in what I write or this podcast, somebody can get 
a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of peace, or just the simple acceptance. Hey, let's talk about this. Well, your mouth to God's ears. I mean, I would love that. And, you know, I would clearly love to go back to being the, you know, the, the troglodyte that I was uh, in, in the way I thought about mental illness and the way I dealt with grief, which was not dealing with it at all, uh, that I was when Max, if it meant that, you know, Max would be alive, but that's not really how that works. And, you know, the, the two aren't connected, sadly enough. So this is what happened and you have a choice. You can either, you know, stay in that really comfortable fetal position or you can get out and, and, and deal with it and, and do the best you can. And that's all really the four of us have tried to do. Ivan Maisel, thank you so much for talking to me. The book is I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, a memoir of loss, grief, and love. Uh, it's really, really important. And I, I find it odd to be saying, hey, get it for somebody for the holidays. <laughs> but I really hope that if someone is looking for a book that might be, a, be interesting, and more than interesting, really, really important, they think of getting this book. So Ivan, thanks a lot. Thank you, Peter. I really appreciate it. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. My thanks to Paul Burmeister, as usual, uh, for keeping this show on the road, and to Ivan Maisel for his thoughtful and very, very important conversation about mental health and uh, about the death of his son, Max. And we'll see you again next week with another edition of the Peter King Podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939.
Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.